Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover the whole chapter of Revelation 7, verses 1 through 17. This is the chapter which talks about 144,000 Christians being sealed. Our context is this. In the last chapter of Revelation 6, we had the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth seals of that scroll that was handed that was in the right hand of God who sits on the throne. Nobody could open up the seals except the Lamb who was slain. And out of those seals came the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seals, and then the fifth seal was the martyr slain under the altar, and the sixth seals was all the decreation rhetoric, moon turning to blood, sun getting darkened, and so forth, all of which stood for Jesus conquering and Jesus judging the nation of Israel for its murder of him. And so judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem, but there's a problem. There are Christians in Jerusalem. They can't be judged. God's not going to judge them. And so now in, in, in Revelation 7, we have 144,000 Christians being sealed. So we start with Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And of course, the, after this is after the sixth seal. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the, of the land holding back the four winds of the land, so that no wind should blow on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Now, of course, I've translated gay as land instead of earth. I think that's the better translation. This is not talking about judgment on the whole world. It's talking about judgment on Israel. Unfortunately, most of the modern translations are futurist in their orientation, and they always default to earth. It doesn't make sense, really. It's land. Are there four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So what's all this reference to four? Well, four is associated with universality, the four corners of the globe. We use that in English even. And so these angels had the ability to wreak total devastation on the land. From the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west, the land of Israel was going to be destroyed. Now, winds, as I'm going to show you in a minute, stands for destruction. So the four winds of the land means the destruction that's going to come from all quarters to destroy Jerusalem. That destruction was held back by these four angels. Why? Because we've got to give the time for the Christians to get out of Dodge. The four angels held back the destruction so that no wind, i.e. wind of destruction, would blow on the land or, or on the sea or, or on any tree. So that's the general idea. Now, the four winds might have reference to the four horses in Zechariah 6, 2 through 7, same colored horses in different order, red horse, black horse, white horse, and a grizzled and bay horse. A bay horse is a reddish-brown horse with black points on his bottom legs and his tail, his mane, which is not quite the same as the four horses in Revelation because the fourth horse in Revelation was a pale green horse, not a bay horse, not a grizzled horse. But at any rate, these four horses are said by the angels who's giving the vision to, to Zechariah. So these four horses are the four spirits, or the four winds, because spirit is ruach, because spirit is wind. It's the same Hebrew word. These are the four winds of the heavens which go forth. And they go forth, and they go all over the, the north, into the north country, into the south country. Why? They were patrolling the earth. And, of course, they found out that there was no danger going on so they could rebuild the temple the idea of patrolling the four winds of the, the that the four winds of patrolling has the idea that the winds have power over what's going on down there and that's roughly related to the idea of judgment but that to me although quoted by Chilton that to me is not as strong as this looking in the old testament and seeing how winds are used to 
execute God's curses on rebellious people. Let me show you that, Genesis 41, 27. And the seven thin and ill-favored kind, as cows, they came up after them. This is in Joseph's vision, Joseph's vision while he was in captivity in Egypt. These seven cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears, blasted with the east wind, shall be seven years of famine. So the east wind blasts the corn. That stands for famine, judgment. Exodus 10:13. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locust. So there's wind associated with locust, which is judgment on Egypt. Exodus 15:10. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them, and they sank as lead in the mighty waters. So the wind blew over the Egyptian soldiers chasing the Israelites out of Egypt, and whoom, they drowned in the Red Sea. Judgment. Psalm 18, 10-12, And he rode upon a cherub, and did fly, yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret places, pavilion around him, round about him, were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At, that, at the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. So there you have wind associated with dark waters and thick clouds of the skies, thunder clouds, judgment. And you have it associated with hailstones, judgment, destruction of crops, coals of fire. It sounds like lightning coming from the sky. So there you have wind associated with judgment. Psalm 107, verses 25 and 26 for he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. So there God commands and raises a stormy wind, which causes the sea billows to wave high and low, high and low. So wind is associated with storm, i.e. judgment. Psalm 135, 7 and 8, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries, who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. So their wind, along with some other natural phenomena, wind is associated with smiting the firstborn of Egypt. Judgment. Psalm 147, 17 and 18. He casts forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes the wind, his wind to blow and the waters flow. Their wind is associated, sounds like hailstorms, smashing the crops. And wind is associated with judgment. And the waters flow, it sounds like floods. So wind is associated with judgment. Psalm 148, 8, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word. There's some bad stuff, boys, fire and hail, snow and wind. Hosea 13, 15, and 16, Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. There once again, the wind of the Lord comes up from the wilderness, and what do you have? Judgment! Your waters dry up. The treasure of your vessels disappears. Your infants are dashed to pieces. Your women with child shall be ripped up. So I think I've maybe done a little bit of overkill there, but it's obvious wind is associated with judgment in the Old Testament. It fits our context perfectly because judgment is about to come on Israel, but, not, but it's being held back right now so that the Christians can escape 
God will not destroy the Christians during the siege of Jerusalem. It was unthinkable at that time that Christianity could even exist apart from Judaism. So when the Christians read the destruction of Israel in the book of Revelation, they're going to think, "Uh uh-oh, that means we're going down too. With all the judgments predicted to fall on Jerusalem, Christians might think they were going to be toast also. So they're given comfort here in chapter 7. Now, Revelation 7.1 says that no wind would blow on the land or on the sea or on the trees or on any tree, land, sea, and tree. Now, this is looking ahead to the judgments in the first and second trumpets. So the trumpet trumpets, trumpets are being held off until the Christians can be sealed. Let me give you the first trumpet in Revelation 8-7. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood as they were cast upon the land, and the third part of trees was burnt up. So there's the judgment on the trees. Revelation 8-8, and the second angel sounded... And as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. So there's the judgment on the sea. And a third part of the sea became blood. All right, so the first trumpet has land and trees burn up. And the second trumpet has sea burn up. So there's land, trees, and sea. And Revelation 6.1 says, hold the judgment, hold the wind, so that no wind will blow on the land, sea, or tree, or on any tree. We go now to Revelation 7, verse 2. And I saw another angel... This is John speaking. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the land and the sea. Those four angels we just read about in verse 1. This is another angel, a fifth angel, if you will. This angel coming from the rising of the sun is probably a reference to Christ. We read in Malachi 4, 2, the sun, that's S-U-N, the son of righteousness who is risen with healing in his wings. Now, why do we think that? Well, rising of the sun, the sun of rising of the sun in Revelation seven two and Malachi four two, the sun of righteousness who is risen sounds pretty close. And again, remember you interpret Revelation by looking at the Old Testament imagery. Ezekiel forty three one through two says this: Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looks toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. So there we have God coming from the east. Here's what John Gill says about this. Christ is said to come from the way of the east, which agrees with him in his character as the rising sun of righteousness and with his incarnation, when as the day spring from on high from heaven as he visited, he visited us was born in the east where his star appeared. The star of Israel, the star that announced Jesus's birth came from the east. He's the son of righteousness who is risen. Where does the sun rise from? He rises in, the sun rises in the east. So Jesus is called the sun, the S-U-N of righteousness rising in the east. In Malachi 4.2 and then in Revelation 7.2, John says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, which is in the east. So we're going to take that as Jesus. He has the seal of the living God. That means that he can say who belongs to God and who doesn't belong to God because, because that's what a seal is. It's a mark of ownership. All right, so now we're going to see what Jesus is going to do with that seal. Revelation 7, 3, saying, and again, this is Jesus talking, saying, do not harm the earth. He's saying to those four angels who have the ability to blow the wind, who are holding back the winds from judging the land. And Jesus is saying, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So Jesus, this angel that rose with the sun, which we're assuming is Jesus, he's going to seal the bondservants of our God. That's believers in God, Christians. He's going to seal them on their forehead. Now, when he says, do not harm the land of the sea and the trees, that means the trumpet judgments haven't taken place yet, haven't taken place yet. And so the Christians must be protected from the coming judgment. 
And notice that Christians are sealed. Remember in Ephesians 1, 13 and 4, 30, Paul writes to the Ephesians and talks about how Christians are sealed with the Spirit. Well, likewise here, Christians are sealed with the Spirit. Let me read those two scriptures. Ephesians 1, 13, In him you also were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, and when you believed, you were sealed. That means you belong to God. Nobody's going to touch you. Ephesians 4.30, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So seal is a typical symbol that talks about ownership and protection of God. So, well, let me, let me make that a little bit more explicit, the meaning of seal in the biblical world. One, it was a grant of authority and power. Two, it was a guarantee of protection. And three, it was a mark of ownership. So protection and ownership. Protection by God and ownership by God. And also a grant of authority and power, which means that Christians now have the authority of God by transference from Jesus to us. But it's mainly here talking about protection and ownership. Now, this sealing, this uh, this scene here uh, in Revelation 7 of the sealing of the bondservants of God is foreshadowed in Ezekiel 9, 4, 5, and 6. And we read there, And the Lord said unto him, this is a man with an inkhorn and a vision, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sign that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. So there the good guys, the non-idolaters in Israel, were sealed with a mark. And to the others he said, In my hearing, go you after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. So instead of the mark of the beast, we've got the mark of the Holy Spirit. You don't get killed. So the idea here is you've got the mark of Jesus in Jerusalem. You don't get killed when the judgment comes on the land. Now, the Hebrew here about the mark upon the forge that Ezekiel talks about is literally a Hebrew word, tav, T-A-V. Forgive me if I pronounced that wrong. I don't know Hebrew. It was in the shape of a cross. Now, Bonson disputes this. Chilton says that this has some kind of reference. Put a cross on the men that cry for the abominations of the idolatry. Put a cross upon those who worship God. Well, that's nice, but I don't believe, I think Bonson's right about that. I think that that's just a coincidence that Chilton is getting a little bit too excited. We go down to Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, this 144,000 is an number that is quoted all the time, mainly because of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say only the 144,000 are going to make it, and, and so forth. Well, no, that's not what it is. It's talking about Christians. Now, it either could be Jewish Christians who were sealed from the destruction or of Israel in 8070, or it could be symbolic of all Christians, both Jew and Gentiles. I'm going to take the latter position, although either one could would fit here. But first of all, let's look at the symbolism Whenever you see a multiple of 12 and a multiple of 10 in the book of Revelation, think symbolism, not literal, not literally, symbolism. What is 12? 12 is a symbolic number that stands for the tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes of Israel. You square 12 because x squaring is a exponential mathematical operation that produces a large number quickly. So 12 times 12 is 144 Israelites. And then 10 is always a number that means many. You square 10 exponentially. You got even more men. You got many squared, and you keep doing that, cubed, quadruped, whatever, and you got lots and lots and lots. Now, this idea of 10 symbolizing many, this is even in the Chinese language. They have a, a character, Wan, which means 10,000, 
And uh, they use it all the time for a journey of 10,000 miles starts with the first step and that kind of thing. And so pretty soon that number 10,000 stands for a lot. Well, the Hebrews did the same thing. Let me show you how 10 and its multiples symbolizes many in the Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy 1.11, the Lord God of your fathers makes you a thousand times as many more as you are. Deuteronomy 7.9, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God which keepeth keepeth comfort and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Well, that's obviously meant to be symbolic. It means a lots and lots and lots. Psalm 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills is God's. I remember one time I was dealing with a literalist a dispensationalist when I was teaching. He was giving me a little bit of static and I said, well, let me ask you something. Is the cattle on a thousand hills symbolic or not? A little pause, a little thinking. I said, well, does God... There's more than a thousand hills in the world. Let's say on the thousandth and first hill, does God not own those cattle? So obviously it's not meant to be taken literally. It means lots and lots and lots and lots of hills. Psalm 68:17: the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. Psalm 84:10: for a day in thy course is better than a thousand. A thousand days, that's a long, long time. It's not literally a thousand. Psalm 94, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday. That means lots and lots and lots of years, not literally a thousand years. Now, for all you fans out there of the idea that there's a millennium in the future, for all you pre-mill guys out there, notice how many times a thousand is not used literally in the Old Testament scriptures. And so then when you see a thousand in Revelation 20, you say, see, there's going to be a literally a thousand years. Oh, no, it's not. Not if you go by the context of the... Old Testament. Here's another proof that this 144,000, well, if a thousand is not literal, and, and then 144,000 by extension is not literal either. And here's a, another way you can prove that the 144,000 are not literal. If you look at Revelation 7 9, which says this After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and language, which no one could number. If you can't number it, that means it ain't literal. You can number 144,000 literally. It might take you a while, but you can do it. But this vast multitude is said to be one that no one can number, so therefore 144,000 cannot literally be 144,000 standing before the throne. Now, I will say this. That's not a slam-dunk argument because you could argue that the great multitude in Revelation 7-9 is a different vast multitude than the 144,000. You could say the 144,000 is literal, and then the vast multitude is not. But really, do we really think that? That's not, that's not very probable. So what does the 144,000 stand for? It stands for there's going to be lots and lots of the people of God who are going to be saved from the fall of Jerusalem. Now, the question is, is this 144,000 Jews? I see if you're a literalist, you're going to look at that from the tribe of the sons of Israel and say, aha, tribe of the sons of Israel, this is not talking about Christians, it's talking about Jews. Oh, no, it's not talking about Jews. It's talking about Christians. I mean, think about James when he wrote his book, James 1.1. James is very Jewish, of course. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Is he writing to Jews or is he writing to Christians? He's writing to Christians. It's a Christian book. It's in the Christian New Testament Bible. So the old Israel is assembled for the new Israel. So we got 144,000 from the tribe of the sons of Israel. It's referring to the new Israel, the church. We go now to Revelation 7, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And this is a list of the 12 tribes. I'm going to run through this very quickly. 
of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Asher, Asher were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Nephtalim were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now, there is a difference in the list of the 12 tribes in several places in the scripture, old and new, and it's a very interesting discussion as why they're a little bit different. For example, some, some of them have Levi, some of them don't because Levi didn't get any inheritance. Some of this one has Joseph, and some of them split Joseph out into Ephraim and Manasseh. And all of that's very interesting for people who want a Ph.D. in New Testament studies. I believe it's a little bit too detailed for what we're going right now. Also, the order of the tribes are listed in different order, and Chilton has a very interesting academic discussion on why the tribes are listed in a particular order, which is too deep for me. But in case you really get into this and get addicted to Revelation, you might want to study that sometime. But at any rate, it, in my opinion, the, tw the 12 tribes are said to be Jewish, just standing for Jewish Christians. And then when we get to verse 9, which we're coming to in a minute, the great multitude from every, all, every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, that's talking about the Gentile Christians. So we got the Jewish Christians in verse, verses 5 through 8, the 12 tribes of the tribe of Israel, Jewish Christians, and in verse 9, the Gentile Christians. Now, again, that's not a slam dunk. It could be that the 144,000 just stands for Christians in general, the new Israel, and the, and the, uh, the massive numbers that are in verse 9, that could just be referring back to the same 144,000. It's not a different group of people. That's a matter of interpretation or a matter of opinion, I guess, which way you go on that. I can't prove it one way or the other. But I like the idea of breaking it down between the Jewish Christians and then the Gentile Christians. So let's go to Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Now, every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, that's standard language for the Gentiles. So whether the Gentiles were included in the 144,000 or whether they followed on the 144,000, the point is, hot dog, there's a bunch of people believing in Jesus. They're clothed in white robes. White is a standard symbol for righteousness. They've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Palm branches were in their hands. Palm branches were the symbol of the approach and the reign of the Messiah. You remember Jesus coming into to old Jerusalem as the Messiah, and people were waving palm branches. Well, here, we're talking about the new Jerusalem, the church. People are waving the church in, waving the, to the Messiah with palm branches again, because the New Testament kingdom is being established, the new covenant. Remember, the whole book of Revelation is about the establishment of the new covenant between the first advent and the second advent. Now, if we take it that the 144,000 were Jewish Christians saved out of the judgment on Jerusalem and the, and the great multitude here in verse 9 is the mass of Gentiles who were saved thereafter, that means the Jewish Christians became the seed for the universal church. They were the ones that got it started, which is nice to remember for all those who want to say, oh, Christianity is anti-Semitic. Listen, the church started with Jews, Jewish believers. Let me make one minor point concerning the literalist interpretation of 144,000. If you were a literalist, you could say that the 144,000 were literally 144,000, which I think is an extreme stretch, but you could logically say that, and then the innumerable multitude would be a different group than the literal 144,000. I don't believe that. I believe it's symbolic all the way. We go now to Revelation 7, verses 10, 11, and 12. And they cried out in a loud voice. That's the 
myriads of myriads of Christian believers dressed in white waving palm branches. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Another theme of the book of Revelation, it's a book of praise to him who sits on the throne. This is a re reprise, I guess, of the heavenly scene we saw in chapter 5. What do we got? We've got the throne in the center. We've got four living creatures around the throne. That stands for all creation, praising God. Then we've got the 24 elders. That stands for the people of God, the church, both old and new covenant, praising God. So that's the believers praising God. And then we've got all the angels in, uh, above and around, myriads of angels. They're also praising God. Everybody's praising God. Revelation seven thirteen and 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? That's one of the 24 elders around the throne. I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones. So in other words, that question from the elder, he was not asking for information. He was asking for a rhetorical effect to get just to get an answer out of, uh, out of somebody. But he knew the answer. It was a rhetorical question. And so John said to this elder, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, first of all, let's take great tribulation. That's the same great tribulation as predicted in Matthew 24, 21, the Olivet Discourse, which was referring to the, the wild events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 21, for at that time there will be Great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Now, of course, I'm assuming an Orthodox Protestant interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. Futurists will see great tribulation and their trained minds will just automatically jump to the end of the world and say, the great tribulation, the last seven years, we're raptured out of that and we don't have to go through it. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the great tribulation of all the apostasy and all the famines and earthquakes, all of which are documented historically, mostly in Josephus. That happened right during and before the Jewish War in AD 66 through 70. So the ones who just, who uh, survived the Jewish War, survived the Great Tribulation, they're the ones that come out of it. Now, if you say that John is referring to here the 144,000, which is the same thing as the great multitude that came out, well, that you're going to have a different interpretation of this than if you say that the 144,000 are the Jewish Christians. Let's start with the interpretation that the 144,000 are Jewish Christians who came out of the Great Tribulation. That means literally they came out. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, when they saw the armies which caused the abomination of desolation surrounding the city, Jesus told them to flee, and they did. This is a great story in Josephus, the Roman general Cestius Gallus besieged the city. Everybody's trapped in there. The zealots were in there controlling the city, and they hated the Christians, and they say, don't you do anything. You can't get out of here. But then Cest and the Rome and they, could they couldn't flee because the Romans were around the city. Then Cestus Gallus inexplicably withdrew from the city and headed north. The zealots chased the Roman armies outside of the city, leaving the Christians free to flee, which they did. They went to Pella, few miles to the northeast across the Jordan River and the city went down and they were saved because they weren't in the city when it was burnt by the Romans. So they, those 144,000 Jewish Christians came out of the Great Tribulation, just like it says. And I think that's a neat, neat and clean interpretation. But now if you say that who John is talking to here in Revelation 7 is the 144,000 plus the great multitude that came after the 144,000, the Gentile Christians too, 
If that's who John's referring to, then you got a problem. These are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation. Well, the Gentile Christians didn't come out of the Great Tribulation literally like that. Well, here's a way around that. You can say come out of means resulting from the Great Tribulation. I looked up a definition of come out. It means resulting from. This is Erkomai in Strong's definition, number 2064. In the Crosswalk Lexicon, where I got this from, the second definition says it metaphorically means to come into a to being, to arise, to come forth. So, if you take it that way, then the multitude of Christians, which would include all the Gentile Christians in addition to the 144,000 Jewish Christians, all that multitude who came out of the Great Tribulation, they resulted from, they arose from the Great Tribulation. In other words, the Jewish Christians became the seed of the Gentile church in the future. They resulted from the Great Tribulation. The, Jew, the Jews persecuted the Jewish church. The Jewish church got out, and then they spread the gospel to the Gentiles, and they arose. Either way, I think it works, and either way, the 144,000 stands for Christians, either Jewish Christians or all Christians, however you want to take it. We go now to Revelation 7, verses 15, 16, and 17. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. That's the 144,000, either including or in addition to the multitude of peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They're all before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, here we're going to see a lot of Old Testament language put right here in the book of Revelation, talking about the servants of God. All right, the Christians serve God day and night in his temple. This will just like the Levite singers in the service of the temple in the Old Testament, First Chronicles 9.33. The singers, the heads of the Levite families, stayed in the temple chambers and were exempt from other tasks because they were on duty day and night. John in Revelation 7 verse 15 says that the multitude of Christians will serve God day and night in his temple. Old Testament language. First Chronicles 23:30. they are also to stand every morning to give thanks and praise to the Lord and likewise in the evening, morning and evening, day and night, they're serving God in his temple. Psalm 134:1. now praise the Lord all you servants of the Lord who stand in the Lord's house at night. Doesn't mention day, but the idea is of course day and night all the time. We Christians are to serve our God. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Spread his tabernacle over him. The NIV translates that as spread his tent over them. Spread his tabernacle is the New American Standard. The Homer Christian Study Bible says spread his shelter over them. The Good News translation just says God will protect them. And that's what it means. You spread your tent over somebody. You put them out of the rain and the heat. And you protect them. So this is a illustrates a major theme of Revelation. Christians will be delivered from the persecution of the Romans and the apostate Jews. They're not going to go down. The book of Revelation was a book meant to encourage persecuted Christians. Now this other phrase, they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun bear down on them nor any heat. For the Lamb and the Son of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. All of that comes straight out of Isaiah verses 49, chapter 49, verse 10. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. Well, that's exactly what John said in verse 16, Revelation 7. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun bear down on them nor any heat. Exactly straight out of Isaiah. Isaiah 49.10 continues, For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. That's the Lamb. In Revelation, John says the Lamb shall lead them. Even by springs of water shall he guide them. Let me go back into Revelation 7. It says, for the Lamb and the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Isaiah said, will lead them. Revelation 7, verse 
17 says that the lamb, Jesus, will be their shepherd, same thing, and will guide them to springs of the water of life. Springs of the water of life, Isaiah says exactly the same thing. For he shall lead them, even by springs of water shall he guide them. So, there are three parallels between Revelation and Isaiah. Revelation 7 and Isaiah 49. There's not going to be any hunger or thirst in the kingdom. No heat or sun shall strike the believers, and followers will be led to springs of water. That's us, folks. As John Gill says, this prophecy of Isaiah 49.10 is fulfilled in Christ and his followers, and is fulfilled in Revelation 7. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with Revelation 7 and the sealing of the 144,000, the sealing of Christians. If you stay with me for Revelation 8 on our next audio, verses 1 through 13, we will look at the seventh seal, and we will look at the first four trumpets, which of course are part of the seventh seal. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 